love. We are not consumed. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is Your faithfulness. Lord, great is Your faithfulness. This morning as we woke up, as we felt the fresh air of summer, we saw that You were faithful. The fact that we woke up, Lord, that You gave us another day of life is a gift from You. God, we look around us and everywhere we see the world flowing with the milk and honey of Your blessings toward us. Lord, we have friends. We have children. We have vehicles. We have clothes. We have food on our tables. Lord, none of us here is... uh, in starvation. God, Your blessings are all around us. And Lord, we thank You most of all for the great mercy You have shown us in sending Jesus Christ to be our Savior. Thank You for His blood that was shed on the cross for us. Because we know, Lord, that without the blood of Christ saving us, we would be completely oblivious to Your mercy. We would be people who are just living as if there was no God, despite all the mercies You've given us. And so, Lord, we praise You this morning that Jesus has shed His blood and that through what He has done for us, there is access to Your throne. That we who are poor and weak, like we just sang, can come into the presence of the King as beloved sons and daughters. Great is Your faithfulness. Lord, we thank You this morning that You're with us, that You're here. We do want to lift You, Lord, many concerns that are on our hearts. We Uh, pray for those who are our missionaries around the world that our church supports. Lord, we pray for this team of missionaries that's going out from our church very soon to South Africa to minister uh, to those uh, in the midst of the AIDS crisis there and to teach um, abstinence and character-based education in the schools there to try to stem the tide of that humanitarian disaster. Lord, I pray that you bless them. Bless Mary Roman, Lord, as she goes to Peru Uh, very shortly, to help lead a vacation Bible school there on the coast. God, bless her and her efforts. Thank you, God, for this church where there are people who not only profess Christ, but are going out into the world, uh, to the far parts of the world from us, in order to preach the Gospel. God, thank you for that gift to this church of those people. Lord, we pray that you would bless our congregation, that you would help us to be a, a loving church, a holy church. God, make us a praying church. Forgive us, Lord, for how little we sought You in prayer this week. Forgive us for how slow we were to turn to You in prayer and how quick we were to worry and stress out and stay up late at night. Lord, forgive us for our prayerlessness. Make us a people who love to pray. Lord, we pray that we would seek You uh, earnestly. Lord, thank You for the Bible. I pray that we would be a Bible-reading congregation. And more importantly, that we'd be a Bible-obeying congregation. God, I pray that You would put in our congregation a heart for people who don't know Jesus, that we would take the amazing gift that we found in Christ and be eager to talk to other people about it. Lord, help us overcome our introverted natures. Help us to overcome our New England conservativeness about talking to people about our faith. And Lord, help us to proclaim the Gospel in loving and clear ways. God, I pray that You would uh, help those in our congregation who are struggling. Bless those who are struggling financially. Give them what they need as they trust in You. I pray, Lord, for those who are out of work. I pray, Lord, for single parents who are trying to raise family on one income. God, I pray for anyone, Lord, who is struggling financially, that You would give them what they need. God, I pray for those who are uh, ill in our midst. 
whether physically or perhaps emotionally or even mentally ill, Lord, I pray that You would give them strength today. Sustain them in the midst of their trials. Heal them, Lord, we pray. And God, we pray now that as we come to Your Word, the Bible, that You would speak to us. We know that this is not just another book. It's not just a religious tradition, but this is the living Word of God. And we pray, Lord, that as we study Your Bible this morning, that You would speak to us, that You would challenge us and touch our hearts. Be with us now. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, if there's any children here, kindergarten to second grade, they can be dismissed to Children's Church, which you'll find through the door over here by the piano. When the rest of you open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. If you're using a pew Bible and you're a little fuzzy on Luke chapter 12, you can find it on page 1031. Luke chapter 12, as we continue our study through Luke. Hope you're all enjoying the summer. Hope you're getting some time off. You know, it's almost August. It's basically gone. It's really, we should start Christmas shopping now because it's, it's over, folks. I'm sorry to tell you. Hope you're getting some camping in and some vacation this summer. We were just up in Maine this week camping. It was awesome. Enjoying the beaches. Luke chapter 12. We're going to study verses 13 to 21 today. Let me just read the text first. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. 365 million dollars. That is the largest uh, lottery jackpot that's ever been won. It was actually won this year, maybe you remember it in the news, in February. Uh, it was paid out in Nebraska, uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. There was eight co-workers who worked in a food processing plant and they'd, you know, whenever the lottery got to a certain level, they would all buy tickets and they've been doing it for a number of years. Anyway, they hit the jackpot and uh, eight of them split it. They decided to take a cash payout instead of the, I guess, annuity is the other way you can do it. So uh, after taxes and dividing it eight ways, they each pocketed $15.5 million to do with whatever they wanted. Uh, you know, what would you do if 15 and a half million dollars landed in your lap. I mean, what would you do? 
Would you finally give your boss the speech that you've, you know, prepared <laughs> in your mind so many times? And they go, listen, here, let me tell you what to do, all right? And you would resign. Uh, maybe you would upgrade your house, you would upgrade your life. Uh, perhaps you'd purchase those things that you've always wanted to purchase. Uh, new Harley, you know, th- theoretically. Um, a boat, uh, a living room set. You know, what, what is it? Whatever it is that you've always kind of dreamed of and you've wanted to have, you know, you'd finally get that thing. Uh, apparently it's a question that a lot of people not only ask theoretically, but ask with their money. Uh, I, I was looking online, I found out that last year, 2005, the Massachusetts Lottery grossed $4.3 billion in, uh, in lottery. So that's amazing. I didn't know it was that much. If you divide that number uh, by the number of people who lived in Massachusetts in 2005, it comes out to, I think, like $680 per person spent on uh, the lottery. So I think there's probably a lot more people out there playing the lottery who, uh, th- than they're admitting it. I, let's have a little moment of truth here, okay? <laughs> Just raise your hand if you played the lottery, okay? Come on. Just me? All right, those of you, those of you out there, okay. Oh, come on! I know you're like, yes, right up there, little kid. I know you haven't. I mean, I, I played it like when it gets above $200 million. I mean, I have my principles. <laughs> I'm not going to waste my money if it's a low jackpot. But, you know, if it gets above $200 million, I mean, you'd be a fool not to, right? But, uh, <laughs> um, well, today Jesus is talking about money, what to do with wealth, uh, what to do with prosperity and riches that are given to us. He's been teaching on the issue of discipleship. He's been training his people, uh, training his disciples how to live in the face of persecution. And then today there's kind of an abrupt shift in the topic and he moves to the topic of money and wealth. Uh, Christianity and wealth. How do we handle wealth? What do you do with resources and with money? What should be our attitude? And really from chapter 12, verse 13, um, and you might argue all the way through verse 48, is dealing with this topic of wealth, but especially this next two. So for the next couple of Sundays, we're going to be looking at Jesus' teaching on money. And today he looks at the topic of greed and what we do with financial prosperity in particular. Uh, So if you look at the story, verse 13, it says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Obviously, nothing's really changed. People were fighting over inheritances back then. Uh, Inheritances, man, they can ruin families. People get in fights, people have falling outs. It's pathetic. But um, maybe some of you have had that experience of whatever sort of dysfunctions and disparities lurk beneath the surface of your family, you throw some money in there and it just all comes to the surface. And everyone comes out clawing for things and you've forgotten about the loved one who died because you're fighting over the money. So anyway, this guy comes to Jesus and it's rather abrupt, really. I mean, we've been talking about conflict, you know, if you've been here the last couple Sundays, and the fact that if you're a believer, there's going to be resistance and opposition. And then in the middle of Jesus' sermon, there's this you know, Yo-Yo, who interrupts, and he's like, hey, teacher, tell him to divide the inheritance. So he totally interrupts the message. But Jesus is such a, a masterful teacher and a consummate instructor, he rolls with it. He just takes it, and he turns it into a new sermon topic. He, it's a teachable moment, and he doesn't fight it, he just goes with it. And so he says to the guy, verse 14, man who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you. And then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
greed, that insatiable desire for just a little bit more. How much more you need? Just a little bit more. Just, you know, not quite enough. Uh, it reminded me of the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, who in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 said this about greed. He said, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is vanity, says the writer of Ecclesiastes. Greed is that, that bottomless abyss that every human being has in their soul. We all have it. And if we take the lid off that abyss, there's this vapor, this sucking sound. Just you know, drawing whatever it can into it. And if you stand on the edge of that abyss and listen, you can hear a voice on the wind saying, more, more. And you say, dump more into it. This will do it. This will do it. And it never does it. Uh, greed is like a fire inside of us. It's a little fire. And if you feed it, thinking that, well, that will satisfy it, all it does is, you know, you put more wood on the fire, it gets bigger. That's how greed is. It's an all-consuming fire that grows and burns, and it's never enough. It always wants more for itself. <clears throat> and so Jesus warns us against greed. In fact, he warns us, look at that in verse 15, against all kinds of greed. So greed is one of those things that can manifest itself in lots of different directions. There's almost an infinite variety of uh, permutations of greed that can exist in our lives. We talked about the lottery. You know, gambling is one. People go in, they think, that, you know, I'm smarter than the casinos, I'm smarter, you know, than the tables. Uh, hey, you know, some of you know I actually grew up in Las Vegas, and that's one of the things, you know, that everyone in Las Vegas knows is there's no winners except the house. You don't win, ultimately. Um, uh, gambling, of course, is one of those manifestations of greed. But there's other ones. There's all kinds of get-rich-quick schemes out there. Ways to earn money really quickly, really easy. Uh, just, I think it was about three weeks ago, I happened to walk by a TV and was on the infomercial channel. And, and the infomercial was about quick ways to make money in the stock market. And you, know, you can buy, I don't know if it's a video series or a training course that will teach you how to use the stock market to buy and sell. And you know, there's, all, there's some guy in there who, you know, well, I, I, was so, I thought it was challenging, but it was so easy. I, wow, I just used the principles in this simple guide, and now I made so much money. You know, underneath it's like you know, Joe Smith from Toledo who earned $40,000 in one month, you know, and you too can be financially independent. You know, this whole thing. It, and it just appeals to our greed. You know, I, I, I'm smarter than the stock market. I can just learn a few quick tricks and learn to make money quickly. Uh, or even if, even if it's a legitimate job. I mean, maybe it's just regular business that you do. We all have to work, right? We all have to put food on the table. We all have to earn money. It's not like we can live without money. We need it. But you know, there's that fine line, right? that fine line between earning money to put food on the table and turning earning money into a, like a, a big game trophy hunt. And I don't know where that line is, but we all know it's there. Where, where it goes from like, well, I've got to earn some money to pay my mortgage to putting in long hours and extra work and super overtime uh, and uh, sacrificing my health and sacrificing my family all to make a little bit more. And we've crossed a line from there, in there somewhere between living based on our needs and living based on our greeds. And so even, I think, regular industry and business can be a place for greed. Uh, another one, one of those fine line places I thought of when I was thinking about all kinds of greed is uh, collecting things. Is anyone here a collector? Everyone's, collecting's like innate to people. When I was a kid, I collected things. My daughter used to collect keychains key when she was three. I mean, she didn't even know what a keychain really was, but she just wanted to collect them. And, 
You know, you can collect all kinds of things. You can collect antiques and plants and books and, uh, you know, whatever. And, and collecting can be a kind of benign sort of thing. Uh, and yet there's that line, right, where you go from just having sort of an interesting hobby, having fun, collecting things, to in your heart really being obsessed you know, with eBay, you've got to get the last one in the collection and i got to up my bid or whatever. And so that can become, you know, greed has so many different forms. Jesus says, be careful. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Against that insatiable desire for just a little bit more, for just a little extra. And then he tells us this, which we know. He says, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Life is not about stuff. Money can't buy you happiness. Having more money won't give you your life. You won't find life in things. Because things don't have life in them. They're things. But we think that we're going to find life in them. And so we look for life in stuff. And you get the stuff and it doesn't happen. Jesus says this. I found a bunch of other quotes. Let me give you a few other quotes I found. They're pretty cool. Uh, Rockefeller said, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Vanderbilt uh, said, the care of 200 million, which of course in his day was like, you know, 200 billion or whatever, is like the care of 200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. John Jacob Astor said, I am the most miserable man on earth. Henry Ford said, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. And Andrew Carnegie said, millionaires seldom smile. Uh, And Jesus said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I was thinking about those pirates in the Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Not the new one, I haven't seen that one yet. I probably will, but the the first one, right? You you see us in the movie and the pirates get the cursed Aztec gold and they they fall underneath this curse where they become like zombies, like they're living dead. And they can eat as much as they want, but they can't taste it. And they can drink as much as they want, but there's no pleasure in it. And they can have all the wealth in the world, but they're kind of living dead. And they're miserable, even though they have everything. And I thought, what a beautiful picture of greed. Of the way greed promises so much, but then when you get it, it's so unfulfilling. It doesn't really give you any life. And so Jesus says, A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Be on your guard against greed. And then to reinforce this, he tells this wonderful little story. This ancient story, which I found so profoundly modern. Uh, this story about this guy with the bumper crop. And so here's the story. And again, it's to, it's to point out the folly of greed and the folly of basing one's life on possessions. So he says in verse 16, he told him this parable. The ground of a certain rich man brought, uh, produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. So here's this guy, right? And uh, he's a well-to-do farmer. And one year he just has a bumper crop. It's like the guy, no matter what he does, he just can't help but make money. He's, he's earning money. He has a huge crop. He's like, wow, this crop is so big. I mean, I don't even have a place to put all this grain on my property. What am I going to do with it? Uh, it? So it's this amazing windfall of prosperity that has come into his life. And he's wondering what to do with the money. Uh, you know, he's hit the lottery, so to speak, through his work. And his hard work has all paid off. His dreams have come true. Um, And maybe we should stop there and just point out something. The problem in the story is not wealth itself. 
money is not immoral. It's not like if you have money, you are therefore an immoral, sinful person. Being successful in business is not evil. In fact, I would argue that it's a gift from God. That if you've done well financially, God has given you a gift. He's blessed you with something. In fact, when you look in the Bible, oftentimes God will show His blessing to His people through financial prosperity. Think of Abraham. Uh, think of Solomon. I think of Job. God blessed them, and the way He showed His love and His blessing was by giving them financial resources. So I don't, you know, this text is not saying that money is evil or that being wealthy is evil, or if you're wealthy, therefore you're sinful and against God. That's not what it's saying. Uh, maybe you've heard the Bible verse quoted sometimes, money is the root of all evil. You heard that verse? That's actually a misquote, right? That's not the real verse. In fact, put your finger here. Let's read the real verse. Put your finger here in Luke, and let's turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6, which is on page 1177. 1177, 1 Timothy 6. 6 to 10. Here's the real quote. This is a great text. Wow, you could preach a whole sermon series off this four verses. Look at 1 Timothy 6, 6. Page 11, 77. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Here's the verse. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The love of money is the root of all evil. So going back to Luke 12, the problem isn't that the guy prospered financially. That was a gift from God. That was, you know, the agriculture and it was a good year and the rain came at the right time and the sun shone at the right time. The problem is, what do you do with it? How do we respond to wealth? What is our heart attitude toward prosperity? And unfortunately, this guy chooses the path of avarice and cupidity. If you look at uh, verse, uh, see, where is it? Verse 17. What shall I do? In verse 18, he comes to his solution. This is what he decides to do. Uh, I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. What do you do when prosperity comes into your life? Uh, maybe you're like, well, I really wish I had that problem. But, you know, in some way you may have that problem. You know, what happens when Grandma passes away and she leaves you $100,000? And you're like, I didn't even know Grandma had $100,000. But, you know, she was some Depression-era lady and she weaseled it away and stored it and it earned interest. And wow, it's amazing what Grandma had. Uh, or maybe uh, you start a business, you grow a business, you sell a business, and you have a great return on your investment. Uh, what do you do with that money? Or maybe uh, you work hard at work and you succeed in your work and you get promoted to a new job and your new position you're earning 60% more than you were in your other position. What do you do when that kind of thing happens? How do we handle wealth? And this man's answer was the path of greed and the path of avarice. He says, I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to keep it for myself. I have plenty of good things laid up for many years. I'm going to take life easy, eat, drink, be merry. Translation, early retirement. 
<laughs> I'm going to retire early. I'm done working. That's it. I was thinking, and that's what struck me as so modern about this passage. I was like, wow, isn't that the unspoken holy grail of American life? Isn't that, like, if, to win the game of life in America is to retire early. If you can retire early, everyone's like, wow, you win. That's it. Winner. Yep. 45, you know, I, I travel. I, uh, you know, shop. I golf. I take a nap in my hammock whenever I want. And people are like, wow. You, know, you are, whoa. <laughs> What's your secret, dude? I've got to learn because you've hit the jackpot. That's the holy grail, is to retire early. <clears throat> and Jesus says it's foolish. It, it's the way, it, it's sinful. It's, it's a wrong approach. And, and let me be clear. I don't think even early retirement in and of itself is an evil thing. Again, it's what you do <laughs> with an early retirement. Uh, I think there's a variety of early retirement that's very rare, but where people give their lives to others based on the resources they have. But unfortunately, that's not typically what early retirement looks like. It usually looks like, you know, golfing till I drop sort of a thing. And so here's this guy who says, I am going to retire early. I'm going to take life easy. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going to be a modern-day Epicurean. I'm just going to live it up, and that's my life. Now that I have so much money, I don't have any more responsibilities. But I think according to Christ, if you do have wealth, it's not that your responsibilities go away, it's that you've been given a huge responsibility. Because now we're responsible before God for what we do with what, let's make this clear, He gave us. right? And now we're responsible to Him for how we use it. And now I think with with God entering the picture here, we're really getting to the nub of the matter. Right? We've been kind of circling around it, you know, talking about wealth and you know, what if you hit the jackpot and greed and all that. But now we're zeroing in and this is the issue. Is that God is still God. We owe Him everything. He is the King. And therefore, all of our lives must be lived in response to Him. And so that's the, the fundamental problem with greed is that it's a rejection of God's authority and lordship over our lives. It's taking money and using it without any appreciation of who God is and what He's done. Or as God says in verse 20, God said to him, You fool! Now that's not just divine smack talk. Okay? When the word fool, as you probably know in the Bible, is a very specific connotation. When the Bible talks about a fool... It's talking about a person who lives life and makes decisions as if there is no God. It's a person who navigates the life course in a way as if it's all up to me and it's all about me. That's foolish in biblical thinking. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Wisdom, on the other hand, is to go through life, to navigate the course of life, to make decisions, including our finances, with a constant reverence for God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we either forget God or we fear God, one of the two. And one makes you a fool, and the other makes you wise. One guides you uh, toward ruin and ultimate destruction, the other is the path of life. And so here, this man is a fool. Uh, on, and, you know, which is interesting, because the world would probably look at him and say, man, you are smart, you figured it out, you're going to eat, drink, and be merry, you should write a book, you should hold seminars, you should speak... You should motivate people on how they can earn a lot of crops and retire early. You're smart. But God has the completely opposite assessment of this person's life. He says, you are a fool. 
Because you lived your life as if money was for you and about you instead of living it in reverence toward God. In fact, he goes on to say, I love this. Uh, he says, this very night your life will be demanded from you. God gave us the riches and you know what? God gives us our lives. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, hey, it's my money. I worked hard for it so I can do with it what I want. The, the wise person says, wow, God has really blessed me. And yeah, I worked hard, but where did I get the health to work hard? And where did I get those breaks in my life to work hard? God has given me this prosperity. And yeah, I worked hard, but it was His strength even working through me. And therefore, I'm a steward of what God has given me. <clears throat> and so now God calls this man to account. He says, look, today's your day. Your number's up. You thought you won the lottery. You've got a different number now. Today is the day I've determined that I would take your life. And now it's over. Your days on earth are done. And now who's going to get what you prepared for yourself? I mean, that's the, real, that's the real rub, isn't it? You work hard, you save money, you pile up goods, and then you die and someone else gets it and they waste it. <laughs> You're going to die and someone's going to get your money and they're not going to treat it with the respect that you treated it because they didn't earn it. And they're going to blow it and they're going to give it to your kids and they're, you know, they may waste it, they may do this or that that with it. And you know, what about your collection? Your precious collection. Your kids are going to look at that when you die and they're going to say, what a pile of junk. Right? <laughs> Whatever your collection is. And it's going to go on a yard sale for 25 cents a piece. <laughs> and you were on eBay for hours. Like, oh, i got to outbid that guy. You know? And your, your kids are going to be like, what, what am I going to do with all this garbage? And they're going to sell it for nothing. And it's all gone. Uh, it reminds me of like Scrooge in uh, you know, the, the Christmas Carol, right? The, the ghost of Christmas future is going to come. And he's going to show us our grave someday. And then what about all the stuff you know, that we are saving up like a miser, counting our coins, counting whatever it is. It's all gone. Uh, or to read again from Ecclesiastes. See if I can find the text. I was checking this morning. Ecclesiastes, I think it's... Hopefully I can find it. Here we go. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He says, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is vanity. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. And then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is vanity and a great misfortune. And so we leave our things to someone else and God says, you fool, you've lived your whole life for stuff and for making stuff and earning stuff and using it for your own pleasure and leisure and now where is it? What has your cupidity earned for you? Nothing, it's gone. And so Jesus sums it up in verse 21. Verse 21 is kind of the summary of the whole teaching. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. And so there's two paths when it comes to finances and wealth and prosperity. Do we live our lives storing up treasure for ourselves, the path of greed, the path of selfishness, the path of I want to earn enough so I can golf for the rest of my life? Or do we earn our wealth to be rich toward God? <clears throat> All of us have a personal economic philosophy. And the question is, is it atheistic or theistic? You know, actually, that's not true. It's not atheistic. Because the person who lives for money isn't an atheist. 
They worship money. <laughs> That's their God. As Paul says, greed is idolatry. It's taking some creative things and worshiping them. And so I think we all need to sit down and, and ask ourselves this question. If God were to audit our finances, would the course of our finances indicate that we are learning to be rich toward God or would an honest audit of our books say, no, 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 it's clear that you, you may say what you want about God, but you're really living financially for yourself. Which one is it? If there were an audit of our books, well, there will be an audit of our books someday. So which one will it be? Will I live as if I'm rich toward God or rich toward myself? And maybe I should just end this message thinking very briefly with you about what it means to be rich toward God. Well, what does that mean? You know, we know what it means to be rich toward self. That's easy. We do it naturally. But how do you be rich toward God? What does that look like? And um, one way you could f- frame it is to say that being rich toward God is to use your wealth in order to obey the two greatest commandments, which are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so being rich toward God means that I use the things that God has given me to love. That I use resources as a tool for love. Loving God and worshiping Him and His name, and then loving those around me. Now, next Sunday, because we're going to look at money again next Sunday in the next passage, a little bit different, but that focuses on loving our neighbor with our wealth. So let me just focus again briefly here at the end on what it means to love God with our wealth. Uh, and I think the way we love God with our wealth is that, especially, we invest in things that bring glory to the name of Christ. We use our resources in, in endeavors and in institutions and in projects that are going to glorify Christ, or more specifically, to really put a fine point on it, we invest our resources in the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's when you know that you love God, or or that's a great indicator. If I am excited about using my money to advance the good news of the proclamation of Jesus, which is done primarily through local churches, whether here or abroad. That's what we, missions is. Mission work is simply helping local churches get going abroad. That's it. But it's all about using the local church that God has put on earth to, to advance His glory and His gospel. In other words, tithing. You know? I know some of you are freaking out now. You're like, this is the first time I came to this church and they're already wanting my money. They're talking about tithing. You know, I knew it. Churches always talk about this. I mean, really. Ask the regulars here. We don't talk about money very much in our church, but I mean, it's right in front of us. How could we not? And so there it is. In fact, I would say the elders would probably say, I don't talk about money enough from the pulpit. Uh, they're probably right, because it's such a big deal. And yet, uh, we don't talk about it very much, but we need to look at it. Uh, when you look at tithing, the amount of money that people give toward the work of the gospel through local churches, whether their own church or through missions, I mean, it's really pathetic. Uh, I was online sort of researching it, and I found out that most studies, you know, there's variations, but... Most Protestant church members, members, average around like 2 to 3% of their income toward local church missions and Christian projects. I mean, you know, we pay more than that to stay in Massachusetts in tax, don't we? So in other words, for some of us, through taxation, we've paid more to the big dig than to God. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> We're not giving our money to the things that really matter for eternity, which is the spread of the good news of Christ, which really saves. Where's our money going? Um, Barna did a study in 2003, and of those who would self-identify as born-again Christians, only 
tithe to churches, missions, and Christian work. I mean, that's, that's a ridiculously small amount. Six percent of us? Really? <laughs> we say we love God and we sing these songs, we raise our hands, but I think our pocketbooks is often a more strong indication of our love for God. And I'm not saying this because I want your money. You know, our church doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your money. I don't get a commission on what comes in. You know, that's not how it works. <laughs> I, I remember I had a conversation once with a guy who was kind of stressed out about the whole tithing thing. He'd recently become a Christian. And uh, he'd really come to know Christ. See, he had grown up in religion. And he never really heard the gospel, but he heard a lot of religion. And, you know, the message of religion is do this, do that. Be a good person, give money, go to church on this day, say your prayer, and if you do all the right things and you check off enough boxes, then, then you're a good person and you go to heaven. That's religion. And, and he'd heard that his whole life, and so he was, you know, this kind of, he called himself like a box checker Christian. Uh, but then he'd heard the gospel finally. In his early 30s, he started hearing the gospel and he was changed. And the message of the gospel is that the way we're right with God is through what Christ has done for us. You know, someone said you spell religion D-O and you spell the gospel D-O-N-E. Done. Christ has done it for us. That through His death on the cross, Christ has paid for my sins. My, my standing before God is based in Christ alone, not in my religiosity. And so he'd been liberated. You know, he'd found the true Christian, the biblical Christianity. The freedom of life of forgiveness through Jesus, not through just trying to Check your boxes off. And he found forgiveness and he found freedom and Jesus set him free and all the stuff we were just singing about. And then he starts coming to church and then it's like, well, you know, you should think about tithing. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Tithing? I just got out of that whole thing. I just left all those legalistic rules. I mean, why? I don't want to go back to that. I'm in the gospel now. And so he, you know, he wanted to talk about it. So we had a conversation one day. It was like at a barbecue at someone's house, at his house actually. And we're talking, and he's like, what's the deal with this? And I'm like, look, you know, it's not about, tithing is not about trying to earn favor with God or impress God. You cannot buy your way into heaven. Even if you're, you know, Warren Buffett and you give $30 billion, you can't, there's no price tag on heaven. You can't earn your way there. That's not why we give. I said, it's, it has to come out of a heart of worship. You know, giving must be thanksgiving. And, and if your giving is not thanksgiving, don't be giving, because that's what God wants. God doesn't need our money. The church doesn't need our money. You know, what God wants is our hearts. And our income is such a wonderful indication of where our hearts are, I mean, honestly. And so God wants our giving to be an expression of worship and praise, a way of saying, God, I love you, and I love your name, and I want your name to be known, and so I'm giving my resources for the spread of the gospel, and I'm giving to a local church, and I'm giving to whatever. And so, you know, we're talking about it. Now, this guy happened to be well off financially. And so I said, now in your case, of course, I think you should be giving 20%. And he was like, ah! You know, but <laughs> maybe 30%, you know? Why, why 10%? You know, it's not about 10% or some number. I, I think the key is setting some goal for yourself. At least that's what I've found. Because if I don't set some number or some percentage, what I find is I don't give anything. But imagine if churches around the country who preach the gospel, if all of us in the church would honor God and give 10% of our income to the work of missions and the proclamation of the gospel in the local church. I mean, it would be scary. It would be phenomenal what could be done you know, for, the, for the spread of the gospel. We, we are, you know, we're a bunch of tightwad Yankees. And it displeases God. 
And so we need to put our money where our mouth is. And we need to, if we really love God, we need to give to the purposes of God. And like I said, I, I don't care about your money personally. I don't get a commission on this. It's about worship. And it's about the spread of the gospel. And if you're bothered that a preacher is telling you to tithe, fine, give the money to missions so it doesn't go to this church. You know, I don't care. The point is that we need to worship God with our wealth as well as everything else. That's a one way, an important way of being rich toward God. And so here's the challenge. Here's the sort of the take-home assignment. Sit down with your finances this week. And if you're married, sit down with your spouse. And, and if you're really Christians and you, you love the Lord, and you, you know, that's where you're at. If you're not there, I understand you know, you're still searching it out. But if you really call yourself a Christian, a follower of Christ, then sit down with your finances and say, what are we doing as far as using our resources to advance the work of the gospel? What are we doing? And maybe you look at your resources and you say, wow, it's really going good. Praise God. Or maybe you'll say, why? <laughs> totally living for myself financially. And then, you know, make a goal. Stop giving for a couple of weeks. You know, stop giving spasmodically. You know, when the offering plate comes, you're like, oh, nuts, the offering plate. Oh, you know, $5. <laughs> you know, stop giving. Don't do that. Go home and think about it. Pray about it. Decide what is it God wants you to give so that when you give in the worship service, it's an act of worship. That's the goal. That's why we do it in the service. That's why there's not a box outside. You know, if, there's, you know, if it wasn't a part of worship, we just put it in a box outside. But that's why we pass an offering plate because it's part of our worship of the Lord. And if it's not an act of worship for you, don't do it until you've got that kind of figured out in your own mind. Um, you heard of John Wesley, perhaps. John Wesley was a, the founder of Methodism. He was one of the great... Uh, Leaders in the evangelical awakening of the 18th century, the Great Awakening. Um, just a, an amazing servant of God. One of the things you may not know about Wesley, though, uh, is that he was incredibly rich. He was very wealthy. And it came through the publication of his tracts. He, he would you know, write his tracts and his articles, and, and through that he made all this money, and people would give him money because of his ministry. And yet, even though he was one of the wealthiest men of his time, he died penniless, which is what he had wanted to do. And the reason he died penniless was because he was always just giving it away. And he had a slogan, which I'll leave you with. His slogan was, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. But that was great. You know, earn as much as you can, be successful, earn money, and then when you get it, don't just blow it on stupid stuff. Save as much as you can. And then of that that you save, give as much as you can to the work of the gospel and to those who are poor and needy, which is what we'll talk about next Sunday. And I know some of you are freaking out. You're like, I can't give. I don't have the resources. And if you're freaked out thinking, how could I possibly give given my little income to whatever it is God's calling to give, then you need to come next Sunday because next Sunday we're going to look at the other detriment to financial uh, serving of Christ. One is greed. The other is fear. And that's what the text is about next week. So I hope you can come back. Let's pray. Oh, Father, forgive us for our greed. Forgive us for our hoarding of your blessings that you've given to us. Forgive us, Lord, for how little we love the gospel, for how little we believe in the gospel, and therefore how little we invest in the work of the gospel. God, forgive us for how little we give to missions, to the local church, to those who are in need. Forgive us, Lord, for buying into the dream of an early retirement so that we can live cushy lives. Lord, we pray that we would be so filled up with Christ, that we would be so alive in Jesus, that, that we would want to use everything we have, our time, 
our families, our homes, and even our finances to serve you. Lord, we pray that we would be a, a, a generous church. God, I pray South Shore Baptist would be known for its really staggering generosity. I pray, Lord, that you would make me a generous pastor, that the money you've given me and the resources you've given me, Lord, that I would be faithful in giving and tithing and going beyond tithing. Lord, I'd love to be a Christian who gives 20-30% to the work of, of your kingdom. And so, Lord, change the priorities of our hearts. We know if our hearts are right, that it will flow naturally into the way we use our resources. And Lord, may your gospel succeed. May your kingdom come. And thank you for the privilege of being a part of it. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the praise team come. We're going to sing a closing song focused on our life and our hope being in Christ alone. Praise team, would you come?